Political Capital is brought to you by Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. Check Podcasts. Hey everyone, and welcome to Political Capital, your source for all the latest in BC politics. I'm your host, Rob Shaw, coming to you from the headquarters of the glamorous media empire that is my living room, courtesy of the cold and flu season in BC. I didn't want to get anybody sick, so here I am uh, in my headquarters. Uh, we, we This week, BC did set a record for the number of people in hospitals. So I didn't really want to add to that with my sniffles which are both very manly and also devastating. So keep me in your prayers. Anyways, we are going to bring in the panel to talk about things this week. Our first show of 2024 is quite a bit actually that happened during the Christmas break. Do a quick introduction here. We will start with Jeff Ferrier from FramePoint Strategies, a former NDP strategist and communications executive from the Ministry of Health. Jeff, thank you for being here. Thanks, Rob. That was a great introduction. You really nailed it this week. That, that's that's all. It's all I got. It's all I got. I'm giving everything I got. Uh, Jillian Oliver, a former BC Green strategist who ran Sonia First Knows leadership campaign. And Jillian, you is there any personal news you'd like to share with the viewers as we start 2024? <laughs> I'm going to be uh, taking a break from the show in a month because I'm having a new baby for the new year. Yay! Yay! Way to go, Jillian. <laughs> Thank you. It's great. You ran Sonny Firstno's campaign, leadership campaign, while pregnant also, right? Yeah. And the 2020 provincial campaign was a newborn. Good times. Wow. And it's yeah. an election year. So there you go. Yeah. You go. <laughs> Timed it perfectly once again. Yeah. 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 And Allie Blades from MASH Strategies worked on BC Liberal campaigns and helped run Pierre Polyev's federal conservative leadership campaign here in BC. Hello, Allie. Hello, it's my favorite day of the week. That's right. It's our Friday show. You're, maybe you're listening to this uh, on a different day of the week, but we're recording Friday morning. And we want to start with that BC Supreme Court injunction against Premier David Eby's uh, law that was passed in the fall uh, to regulate open drug use in public spaces, a law that proposed uh, you know, ban on open drug use six meters from doorways and at bus uh, stops. Also, I think it was 15 meters-ish uh, near uh, public spaces, beaches, uh, that uh, playgrounds, that type of thing. So it was an attempt by the NDP to respond to some of the concerns from decriminalization and the public disorder and the inability of bylaw officers and police to move people along, but it has not passed the initial court injunction uh, test and its constitutionality is being debated. So anyways, the premier got this week unhappy with that. So let's start there on what I think that might mean for the government and how we sort of analyze where decriminalization is at in terms of even public sentiment and political um, uh, kind of uh, calculations here at the start of 2024. Ali, why don't we uh, start with you? Sure. So let's let's rewind a little bit and remind the listeners and the viewers that we're in year two of three of this experimental project. 
This uh, new ruling, though, from the Supreme Court, I think, is a little bit of a blessing to the NDP communications in an election year, just because it's not something that uh, they get they chose. Rather, it's something happening to them. And now they have to figure out how to respond and kind of put their hands up to say it wasn't really it wasn't my fault. Uh, It seems like they haven't really taken a solid position one way or the other and kind of um, orbit around the issue in the safest way possible. But all that has led to is essentially um, not so much in the way of moving the dial in any of this, more deaths, um, no real real solution uh, coming out of this. And so I wonder if it's time to just call it quits and reverse all of this and uh, and, and focus on something else. Um, we over the holidays saw Brad West say that this is a, this restriction doesn't stand that uh, we truly entered the wild west of unrestricted drug use. I mean, those are bold words. And I think uh, we're looking for bold action from the government and we're not really seeing it. We haven't been in the Wild West since political fundraising in 2016, I think, was the last time we were in the Wild oh, West. I thought and... we all forgot about that. <laughs> uh, Jillian, like, where even are we on decrim at this point? Because, you know, decriminalization was supposed to uh, prevent people from being subject to arrest uh, and seizure for personal possession of small amounts of drugs. And now we have a bill that the, the government has passed and is fighting in court that, you know, brings back arrest and seizure of people in public places who use those drugs. And it, it, does any of like, is the, where is the public and where is the politics on this? And how do you think this court ruling kind of factors into all of that sentiment? Yeah, um, I think, you know, well, first, um, I think there is some misinformation out there. It is still illegal to use drugs in playgrounds. The original Health Canada exemption to decriminalization um, already allowed that. The law that has the injunction now sort of doubled up and expanded that and also um, gave the police the ability to to arrest people um, and to confiscate their drugs if they suspect them of being high in these spaces. Um, So still illegal to use drugs in playgrounds. Um, But yeah, I think the government has been reluctant to move forward with decriminalization from the get go. They're sort of caught between, you know, where they think the vast majority of public opinion is where this is, you know, a big step that's very controversial. People have a lot of concerns because of, you know, the the feeling on the ground in their communities um, with respect to public drug use um, and the evidence. You know, we had Dr. Bonnie Henry, harm reduction advocates, doctors, all kinds of folks who are looking at the evidence saying that this is an important step to to reduce um, deaths from toxic drugs, which is, you know, it's the, the second leading cause of death in BC. We're in like, you know, I can't even remember what year of a public health crisis, many years into a public health crisis, six people dying a day, um, very serious. And I think, you know, the government was feeling pressure from those advocates who they have relationships with and also, you know, feeling like they should follow the evidence and listen to experts. Um, but they moved forward with a lot of trepidation. They really watered it down. Um, and now I think they're just not comfortable spending any political capital Um pushing this forward and sort of, you know, leaning into the leadership required to move the dial uh, on the issue because of the controversy. Um, And I think that that's sort of a pattern that we've seen with NDP government, where when there is a controversial issue um, that starts to sort of, you know, 
get them negative attention in the news and the public, they, they pull back on it, whether it was the RBC Museum or, you know, other things like that. They're, when it comes to these sorts of issues, they really don't want to distract from the core of their agenda, don't want to dive into political issues, um, politically controversial issues, even though, you know, they've got a 20 point polling lead. Um, they're just not willing to sort of go down any further uh, to move something like this forward. It, it kind of leaves the government, Jeff, in like the worst case of both worlds where they've gone towards something uh, that advocates say they are undermining, which is reducing stigma of drug use so that people can get help. But they're also, so they're not going far enough on this side, but they've gone too far on the other side for critics and mayors who say that it wasn't, it wasn't well considered uh, and has led to these side effects that require this legislation. And they're stuck pleasing almost no one right in the middle of, of this policy, including the courts, which uh, have put this injunction in place. Uh, which is usually where government uh, needs to be if it's in, in the process of, of doing its job. By the way, Ali talked about Wild West. That's also the nickname of the mayor port, Coquitlam. Uh, Wild West. About that. <laughs> Wild West. Um, look, here, here's how I see it. Starting point, you know, the Harm Reduction Nurses Association. These are the folks who launched this challenge. They're trying to save lives in a toxic overdose crisis. Lots of folks have said lots of things about them and what they're doing. Uh, they're coming at this from a, a, a really good place, and I commend them for doing that. I, I would say, though, that the uh, reaction uh, uh, from them since, and not from them, but from, from folks in this space, uh, since the court decision misreads public opinion and it hurts the group's cause. I think the misread here is that people out there who are concerned about drug use in public spaces are all uh, Trump-loving Joe Rogan fan bros. Uh, they're not. That's the biggest miscalculation since Rich Coleman said housing in BC is pretty affordable. The government is not worried about the fan bros. They are worried about progressive people like Brad West, like others who notionally support what BC is doing on decrim, but have stumbled in their daily lives across hard drug use, use needles, people behaving aggressively while taking their kids to school, while going to playgrounds, while going to get groceries, coming home from daycare. And they've got concerns. And the harm comes from uh, folks who, when people express concerns, people like Brad West, they call them names. He's been called liar. He's been, you know, this, this, uh, uh, said that, you know, you're fear mongering, it's misinformation and dismissing the fear, which is counterproductive because when you do that to Brad West, you're doing that to all those uh, moms and dads the people you need to keep on side if you want to keep decrim uh, and safe supply and harm reduction going, which is what the premier is trying to do here with this law. He's trying to keep those reforms moving forward while addressing concerns from the public. So, uh, it, it, and, and, the, and the outcome of, of, of that, of going hard against folks like Brad West, instead of trying to work with them and engage them and allay the fears and move forward in a positive way, is that you push all those folks that you need on your side uh, back towards the old approach where addiction is a moral failure and the only way to save lives is, is for people to clean themselves up, which is not where we need to be. We'll get back to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So where does government go now, then? Let's go around on that. Uh, it feels like, and I listened to Premier David Eby's comments this week, where he... And I wrote a column about this where he's he's co-opting the language of of his critics that he used, you know, a year ago uh, dismissed as fear mongering in the legislature by comparing his inability to regulate hard drugs to, you know, people using uh, drinking a beer in a park or smoking restrictions. And if government can regulate that, why can't they regulate drugs? That was exactly the debate we had nine months ago in the legislature. Why can you not have a beer in a park, but you can smoke crystal meth uh, with impunity, without impunity and, you, and nothing can be done about it. I'm just wondering where the NDP goes now. If they have shifted their position so much in the last year, and at Jeff, as you mentioned, the public sentiment is not maybe where they started. Do they continue on, on down this path, or especially with BC United proposing to get rid of decriminalization altogether? Where where do you have to land uh, on this issue to to resonate with public opinion? Jeff, quickly with you, and then we'll go around again. Sure. Yeah, r- real simple. Get uh, 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 open drug use away from places where moms and dad take their kids and uh, make it so that uh, people uh, who have... Uh, uh, I, I had kids go to a school in, in downtown Vancouver, and every morning someone would go around with a, a white bucket and those uh, tweezer things and pick up uh, used needles. And I think that the government needs to show progress on uh, allaying those concerns and fears to make those folks feel like the government uh, has it under control and so that the, the work they're doing on decrim and harm reduction and safe injection sites and safe supply uh, uh, can keep moving forward. Ali, where do you think the NDB has to go on this given public sentiment? I think they have to choose a lane here. Um, so I'll, I'll very quickly try to say here that the chief coroner one is leaving in February, but as she departs the role, she's made some comments. Uh, one, that it's become hyper-politicized and that the uh, resources haven't amounted to the crisis levels that this deserved. So she's been in the role for quite some time. Minister uh, Adrian Dix has also been in the role for quite some time. Uh, they, they've had the time to figure this out and time's running out because we're in an election year as well. So people are going to be paying attention in a significant way, not even just the families impacted by this. If uh, Jillian, you mentioned that like they were, they're already seemingly pulling back. Why not just pull back and just uh, wrap this up and, and move away from decrim altogether and maybe start fresh with a different idea because it's not working. Well, we are hitting the one year mark where the government will presumably provide some evidence on how this has gone. Uh, as, as a three-year pilot project, and I don't really know what that is going to be. Uh, Jillian, do you think government will continue to pull away or, uh, and, you know, they're up against parties that want to scrap this entirely? Do they have to stick it out uh, given the capital they've sunk into this already? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It, it kind of, it, it's an interesting issue for the premier, you know, on some issues, he's so clear about, you know, where he stands and, and what he knows to be the right thing on the sort of issue of mental health and addictions. We do see him kind of struggling with it. It was the same with um, the case of uh, involuntary treatment, where initially during his leadership campaign, he said that he was going to look at that. And then when he looked at the evidence, he changed his mind. So I think that that, you know, is a really good place to sort of center the leadership, um, you know, of the the premier's office is to is to follow the evidence and and to you know be, show that you're genuinely trying to advance this. I think there's other things the government can do, like expanding um, safe consumption sites. We haven't seen increased funding. There's still limitations on those. Um, that will go a long way to help solving this problem. Um, without actually backtracking. And then I think also by leaning more into safe supply, there's a study out of first major study of opioid substitution in BC that shows that um, people with access to prescribed opioids had a 61% less chance of dying from an overdose or a drug poisoning than if they didn't have access to that. But we only see that program um, rolled out to a very small fraction of people who use drugs, only about 4,000 people when the coroner estimates it's about 250,000 people in BC who are using illicit drugs. So I think that they've made progress. it's been slow and it's been too small. They need to expand it so that we can start seeing a reduction in those numbers um, because the problem's not going to go away by backtracking. Mm-hmm. We have not seen any reduction in overdose deaths, meaningful reduction, 2023 being uh, another record year. So uh, it feels like we're at a kind of decision point of whether we need to go further into safe supply and decriminalization, regulating the drug use like the coroner has suggested and others. Um, to, to try to make a difference here or, you know, get out of this entirely and refocus in a different way. And uh, I guess that's going to be the debate. Um, how do we save more lives uh, this uh, election year? Let us move to uh, a new poll from Angus Reid showing just a complete collapse in public confidence in the healthcare system since the pandemic. I guess that's not surprising, but the, the um, drop is starkest in British Columbia from, I believe, around 63% approval of how government's doing on healthcare in 2020 down to 27-ish percent a, this current year. So I just want to start there um, and talk uh, about what that means, because it looks like it might be maybe a glimmer of hope for opposition parties, you know, trying to find an issue with, with traction against this government. I'm not sure if we agree on that. Uh, Jillian, sticking with you on that, what do you make of those numbers and the kind of potential political calculations that can be made from them? I think it shows that the door is open for um, opposition parties to make their case come election time. There's a lot of people that don't um, kind of tune in or start thinking about their choice really seriously until the writ drops um, because, you know, people are busy and they're not PC poly nerds like us. But, you know, so far, they haven't shown the ability to do that. Um, BC United is a little bit lost with respect to its identity, sort of chasing the conservatives, you know, finding it hard to nail down who they are and and how to tell that story to voters. Um, Conservatives, I think, are still remains to be seen if they can um, let go of those fringe issues and, uh, you know, really resonate with the mainstream. And I think the Greens, you know, have lots of good ideas, but they've got to convince voters that they're a really viable option. Um, So there's a lot of work for them to do. And I think that, you know, these 
dissatisfaction numbers are something that we're seeing for every province across the country. Um, I think there's a lot of sentiment among voters that these problems are so big. Um, it's not a question of like who's going to fix them all, but who's trying the hardest and who's best placed to at least manage them. And I think there still is continued trust um, in the NDP because of you know lack of scandals, lots of trust from the kind of COVID era management um, that you know, explains the sort of discrepancy between vote intention and, and the approval numbers on these issues. Yeah, when I asked Kevin Falcon about that, that discrepancy, you know, that, that people are angry on issues, 81% uh, of people think government's doing a poor job uh, on cost of living and 83% on affordability. And then you have those healthcare numbers, he said, those are uh, more realistic numbers, because people know where they stand on if they're upset or not about how government's doing right now on an issue. And the voter intention numbers don't matter much because people aren't paying attention 10 months before an election who they really want to vote for. I don't know, uh, Jeff, what do you think of that? Um, if that explanation holds up to you, do the issues numbers we see mean more uh, in the real world than the voter intention numbers? I, I, that's probably Kevin Falcon's walking poll telling him, uh, yeah. giving him his, his, his insights there. No, it's silly. He's saying the numbers that uh, are good for me, uh, those trust those and the numbers that aren't good for me, though. Forget about those. Look, this is like the old, this poll is like the old Who song, uh, meet the, the new poll, same as the old poll. Continue to see big concerns about healthcare, housing, cost of living, uh, and the government's performance on those. And yet the uh, most British Columbians say that they trust Premier Eby and the NDP to, to tackle them. Um, and uh, we didn't talk about economic performance, even though that's also in this poll. BCNDP scores pretty well, which is, Good, good for them in an election year because typically the NDP will lose elections when economies aren't doing well and they have a lot more resiliency in their brand on issues like uh, health care where folks instinctively tr uh, have more trust in them than uh, uh, the more conservative parties. Uh, real quick, I think there's two factors that are, that are, that are driving these numbers in, in all of the provinces here in BC as well. One is growing population, 150,000 new British Columbians, uh, uh, last year, really uh, a good thing for the province, but brings challenges in terms of providing services uh, like healthcare. So that's driving uh, access issues in part, along with you know aging population and lots of other things. Uh, and I think there's also you know this post-COVID fear and expectations that we were okay to hang on by our fingertips during the crisis, but now that the crisis has passed, we're expecting government to make healthcare resilient, far, far better and more resilient so that the, t the next time there's a crisis, we're way better positioned to do it. And despite the government putting lots of money into recruiting health workers, lots of money into operations, lots of money into building new hospitals, uh, the public concerns uh, uh, remain. So uh, government needs to keep working at it. Ali, just quickly, what do, you, what do you make of these numbers? So when we take a look at how all the polling intersects, the NDP get failing grades on managing the province, but they're still one number one in voting intentions. We've all kind of summarized that. Um, but to Jillian's point, I think this is also uh, because the three opposition parties haven't given voters uh, enough trust in them. So we're willing to endure the mess that we know. So the BC United are saying we have to fire Minister uh, Adrian Dix. Um, News alert. I mean, that's winning Vancouver Kingsway. That's how you fire him. Um, the BC Conservatives want to fire Bonnie Henry. That's not health policy. Uh, that's just being angry. 
Uh, and, um, and, and so both are just, they're not, they're not really offering much. Uh, so I don't think that we're, that's going to do anything. All right. Carrying on with actually another topic, I think caught a lot of people, including the government off guard this week, the latest development in the long running, never ending drama that is the Surrey police transition news that the city of Surrey is refusing to pay for the training of 10 new police recruits. The union having to foot that bill, it's approaching $20,000 and rising, all part of Mayor Brenda Locke's continued campaign to fight the BC government's refusal to abandon the municipal force mid-transition and stick with the RCMP, if you can track that. I mean, at this point, it doesn't even doesn't even matter anymore. The government's passed a law about this. Um, it's being challenged in the court. And Surrey just keeps throwing these landmines out all over the place. Premier David Eby calling it incredibly frustrating. Solicitor General Mike Farmworth slamming it. Um, I don't know, Ali, we're going to go to you on on this. Um, like, what what is happening and what, what how do we... How do we view this continuing drama? It feels like when we think we've seen the end of it, uh, there's another thing on the horizon. Yeah, so I'd like to preface this as I always do with that. I do uh, work with uh, multiple police unions um, across the province uh, and MASH strategy is very much involved uh, with uh, some other police organizations across the country as well. Uh, but in my political observation here, Mayor Locke has, is probably the only person in Canada turning away police officers. This at a time where practically every jurisdiction wants and needs more first responders. Uh, so I think that's uh, a tad bit ridiculous. But uh, moving from that, Mayor Locke is also creating an island that rejects NDP collaboration and that makes her office a political liability for any other organization to stand with her. Think about it. You're not going to be doing a very happy ribbon cutting at a Surrey community center uh, with the NDP when you're constantly attacking them. And I think the first shot fired in this political war was when she attacked the solicitor general and called him a misogynist to a room full of media cameras. Do we remember that? That happened last year. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to take a moment, though, and let me just th th this uh Thing that she's doing right now, uh, using the municipal office, um, her mayor's office, on a $500,000 uh, campaign against the NDP. I'm going to remove the fact that it's a municipal office paid by taxpayers and replace it with a third party advocacy campaign to eliminate a thorn in their side, uh, which would then be subject to be elections BC rules in an election year. So, so far, we know that it's a $500,000 budget, but that we know of. I'm sure there are many other costs taken up by the mayor's office that isn't included in that $500,000. But third parties have to disclose their donors. Technically, we do know who their donors are here, taxpayers. Um, third parties have to disclose their expenses, not estimates, but actual receipts, something that the mayor's office won't have to do. Third parties um, in an election campaign uh, also have to register on the list for every voter to educate themselves on what influence and persuasion campaigns are happening in politics. And so all of this to say, like what she's running is an advocacy campaign to eliminate the NDP in the next provincial election, but she's not subject to the same rules that every other organization that would be attempting to do the same thing. She's above it all and may actually get away with it. 
And is the core of that is the the spending on the ad campaign, right? Like if she wasn't spending five hundred thousand, she was just out there doing earned media, jumping on the NDP at every opportunity. It would be a it would be a different thing. We've seen that in the past with mayors who don't like a provincial government on a project, they go after them. But it's the spending of tax dollars that really makes it egregious, right, Allie? That's absolutely it. It's um, I've I've also argued that if she took this $500,000 budget and used it under her the political umbrella with the slate that she ran, that would all be very much above board. But the fact that it's taxpayer dollars is the biggest waste in a time where that could be used for countless other things that would be more productive. So this is essentially just her not getting her way and now she's paying it with your taxpayer dollars. It's ridiculous. And employing, uh, you know, former RCMP, senior RCMP uh, member Peter German, who is, it, you know, in my opinion, kind of taking a buzzsaw to his credibility. He had to come out here and <laughs> explain why the city is not funding these officers, you, you know, talking about they're over budget and they should never have done this. I mean, if that's what the city's paying him to do is to come out and get punched in the face uh, every time the mayor wants to do something, uh, man, that that puts him in a pretty awkward position, uh, especially considering he used to be quite a close ally of uh, Premier David Eby on money laundering and other things. So that's taxpayer dollars being spent as well. I, I don't know what the government does at this point, Jeff or Ali, if either of you want to jump in here. Um, none of us are anticipating these moves that Surrey is doing. I guess the mayor's plan is just keep doing them. Every time she can find a little stick to throw in the spokes of the bike, she's going to do it. But yeah. how do you deal here's, with that? Here's what I think, right? Uh, uh, mayor Locke is doing the uh, uh, time-honored tradition of plucky local government or, uh, or taking on bigger order of government. We've seen this work in Canadian history before. Danny Williams in Newfoundland did it. He took on the federal government. Uh, on all sorts of things, but he could do that because he was popular and because he got lots of votes and he was a winner. And what we have in Surrey is the exact opposite of that. We have someone who barely got elected, who isn't very popular, who uh, couldn't raise the money uh, themselves to run this kind of campaign and so need to take the money from municipal taxpayers at the expense of uh, other services. Uh, I think if I'm the government, I just keep fighting because I'm up against a, a, a weak mayor uh, who's uh, in a loser position on an issue and who can't stop me. And uh, uh, what I would hope that the local government would do would be to stop playing games, put their local uh, residents and their needs uh, first, stop wasting money on uh, leaflets and get your police services in order so that you can have uh, better community safety, which is at the end of the day, what everyone wants. Feels like we have all underestimated the mayor's willingness to continue to fight this in, in, in every possible way. Uh, and also maybe underestimated um, the strength of her, you know, coalition control there of, of council. I, I had expected someone to flip at some point, uh, you know, and to allow the votes to to kind of get over this. But she's kept them in line and continues to ha seem to ha be able to 
you know, push these kind of things through council. So I, I don't know. You're right, Jeff. I guess they, they just keep fighting it. But um, if you're the provincial government, it must be very frustrating to watch this play out. Okay. Uh, let us uh, just hit on a couple other things before we go here. I had a good laugh at the <laughs> much maligned fast cat fairies showing up in the news this week. CBC reporter Justin McElroy noting that those scandal-plagued vessels from the 1990s that uh, cost taxpayers, I think, $400 million, twice over budget, and then didn't work, and we sold them at auction for a fraction of the cost, have resurfaced uh, overseas, where they're now potentially going to be scrapped unless someone from Canada and possibly BC wants to buy them back at more I should point out at more cost now and as dilapidated, decrepit old boats, they're they're up for more <laughs> for more value now than they were when we auctioned them off as brand new boats. They uh, still, they still, hey, did you see that they still they still have the Nanaimo bar uh, uh, prices <laughs> in, the, in, in the boat? Dollar and it costs the same what as is- a Caesar salad. <laughs> what? Oh, oh man, uh, Jillian, you had the best take on on the fast ferries. I think uh, what what parties could use these these old boats for. Yeah, I think it's it's rare that we get something like this that can kind of capture your imagination. You know, we've been talking a lot about how stuck we are on all these issues and it's fun to to have something to sort of play around with. Um, and I think the, the possibilities are really endless. I came up with some ideas that um, seem to resonate, but I really think sky's the limit when it comes to the future of these fairies. I liked your one that uh, maybe the BC Conservatives could use it to burn books out. Yeah, (laughs) they have a flair for drama. I think the imagery would be right. And a floating museum, (laughs) floating Royal BC Museum for the NDP. And what was the what was the BC United one? Uh, Short-term rentals for the Eras Tour because they are heavily invested in that. We saw in the last. That is. That is. We're going to need those uh, when T Swift is in town. Uh, other news this week, uh, we saw the passing of former federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent, who up until Jack Layton um, was, I, I guess you could argue, the most successful federal NDP leader, almost got the party to within the position of o- official opposition uh, during his time. Not quite, but he did get them leading in polls uh, at, at one point in the late 1970s. But uh any thoughts on on that, uh, Jeff, and uh, his passing? I know he's been an influential figure to some provincial politicians here, Marie Rankin, John Horgan, David Eby, others uh, in the NDP movement. Yeah, no, Ed Broadbent has been a, is, is, has been a huge influence, I think, on uh, pretty much everyone who's uh, worked in the NDP over the last uh, 50 uh, years, and myself included. I think he's the best prime minister Canada uh, never had. Uh, I think uh, his fingerprints all are, are all over uh, modern Canada in terms of uh, uh, the social welfare uh, uh, state that we have now that we didn't have when he came uh, uh, to become the leader of the uh, NDP. Uh, and if there's, you know, there's one takeaway I would want to have from, from, from uh, Ed, who's uh, just a, uh, a, a giant and I, and it's, it, it's just decency, right? He was honest, Ed, decent guy came from a time when uh, politics and politicians, and we've talked about it on this show uh, all the time where it was uh, hard on the issues, but uh, decent uh, with people. 
And I hope that uh, even if folks don't agree with Ed on the issues, uh, as I do, I mean, I agree with him on the issues, right? But if others don't agree with him on the issues, hopefully we can all take a moment to reflect on being better to one another as we work on these uh, these tough issues. He also had, I was reading a CBC story uh, about his passing and they, they brought up something he said in his resignation speech as leader in 1989, where he, he talked, and I think it's still relevant to the NDP and some other parties today too, where he talked about how a single-minded adherence to a principle in a party can be, in his words, narcissistically self-indulgent, but to only pursue power is to deny our reason for being. And that navigating that the NDPs had to deal with, other parties have to deal with, you have your, you know, your kind of founding principles over here. If you stick yeah. with them and lose, you're doing one thing. If you compromise with them too much to, to get power, you're doing something else. And having to navigate that path uh, is something parties still wrestle with. Yeah, I think I think the, the the best thing that he ever did as as leader was to create a culture that uh, in the NDP, and this would extend to all parties, but I'm just talking about the NDP here. It's our job, if we believe in higher principles of fairness and, and, and equity, and we believe in uh, social democracy, socialism, he considered himself a social democrat and socialist, that the way you do that is by making a practical difference in the life of everyday people to show them a little bit in real ways um, what this all means. And it's not about beating people uh, uh, over the head to get them to agree to you know highfalutin ideology. It's about making politics real and making a real difference in the lives of everyday people. And, and the more the NDP does that, uh, the more successful they'll be. You and might say it's thanks to, thanks to Ed. You might say it's change for the better, one practical step at a time. The Adrian oh Dix twenty thirteen election campaign slogan, which was uh, which is a deep cut there. I wish I had a sticker with that on it because I still think about that one. One practical step at a time. Uh, Ali, there was a couple other passings actually in in the BC uh, political uh, world. Yeah, uh, Daryl Sears, who was the BC Conservative candidate for Boundary Similkameen, planning to run in the provincial election this year, uh, on his way to another ADA meeting within the Lower Mainland, uh, tragically passed away. And I just wanted to share uh, that uh, my my thoughts and prayers are very much with his family and and the the BC Liberal community also lost uh, Helen Poon this month, also in a car accident. Uh, she was a uh, candidate uh, in a previous election and a uh, city councillor for the beauty, beautiful Port Alberni. Um, and so we're all thinking about her as well. So it's been a very reflective and tragic month. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to us, in your car, stay safe, especially during this cold snap. Uh, get some winter tires. Um, you know, it is a, a very, very, in some places, kind of dangerous time to be out on the road. So if you're listening to us in your car, snap to attention and, and be safe out there. We want you to tune in next week as well, because we're going to be back with all the latest in BC politics. Thanks to the panel. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, and we will see you next week on Political Capital.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.